But it's been my privilege to, uh, to teach the past couple weeks. And tonight we're wrapping it up. Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we'll be in verses 7 through 18. This is the conclusion of the letter. And unlike our other lessons, it's a little different because it's just a list of names. Uh, but hopefully when we leave tonight, you won't see it as just a list of names because they're there for a reason. Uh, Paul did not write this under his own power. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so anything that's there is there on purpose. It's there because God wants us to see it. And so we're going to take our time to march down this wonderful list of names tonight and to hopefully have a new appreciation and maybe even know how to pronounce these wonderful first century names uh, from that part of the planet. But before we jump into our text, I kind of want to give a review uh, to our journey through Colossians. And so each week on your outline, you've seen where we were going week one through week six. And so I want to give you kind of a takeaway line. I think I put it there in your outline. Week one, we looked at verses one through 14 of chapter one. And essentially, in summary, it says that every person in every place is important to Jesus. How do we know this? Because Colossians, or Colossae was an insignificant place. Epaphras, uh, were he not mentioned in this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would have been an insignificant person. But in God's economy, there are no insignificant places. There are no insignificant people, especially when they're lifting up the name of Jesus and building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? And so week one, we were encouraged by that. Every person in every place is important to Jesus. Week two was about doctrine. Uh, the, the middle part there of chapter one, verses 15 through 23. And that essentially reminded us that Jesus is supreme in everything. Supreme in everything. And so Paul was building his case in order to diffuse this doctrine that had, that had crept into the church and so that's, that's a very rich passage of Scripture there. Jesus is supreme in everything. Week three was the disclosure there, the last part of chapter one. And there we saw the mystery that was finally revealed to us and is made manifest in us. And that is this, Christ in us is the hope of glory. And uh, hopefully you, you were able to wrap your mind around that concept that, that Christ is in us and we are complete in him. That's an awesome thought. Week four, we looked at uh, the delusion, where Paul addressed the, the corrupt teaching that was going on in the church in chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. They were saying that it wasn't just Jesus for salvation, it was Jesus plus something else, that Jesus was not enough. They weren't asking people to deny Christ, they were saying, yes, that's a good thing, but he's not enough to save. You need to add to that asceticism, which is denying yourself certain things, certain foods, uh, certain activities. Uh, legalism and, and old uh, legalistic Judaism had crept into the church saying that you had to be circumcised, all the Gentiles, to actually be saved. And so Paul reminds them it's not Jesus plus, it's, it's, it's Jesus only. Just Jesus is enough for our salvation. We are complete in Him. So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Week five, he gives us direction. That's where we were last week. And the overarching phrase was, Christ in us transforms every area of our lives. And you remember how Paul marches through. He transforms us personally. He transforms us socially. He transforms us domestically, vocationally, and missionally. Just through the whole process of our lives, there is transformation because of Christ in us. Well, tonight we're going to look at verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4. And Paul lists... 
10 names here, 11 technically, but he focuses in on 10, and I just called this Paul's top 10 list. Anybody ever watch David Letterman back in the day? You heathens. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not going to judge you. That's right. Only the top 10 list. Gary would just tune in for the top 10, and then he's out. Uh, He used to do a top 10 list, and I thought that was the funniest part of his show, uh, depending, of course, on, on what it was about. But Paul gives a top 10 list, and he includes names. And I think this is so important. And if you're like me, when you're reading through the Bible and you come across lists, you skip them. Let's be honest, okay? The genealogies... Uh, the rules and the regulations, there's a lot of skipping, you know, in Numbers and Leviticus. And, and, and in the epistles, when he starts just firing off these people's names that are hard to pronounce and you don't know who they are, you don't know what they've done and why they relate to what you just read, but they're there for a reason. Names are so important. Every name is a person. Every person has a story. And they're a part of Paul's ministry. And so tonight we're going to take time to look at the names Uh, There's a leadership guru out there named Jim Rohn, and he says that we are the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Think about that. We are the average of the people, the five people that we spend most of our time with. That's kind of scary for me. Have you met the folks I work with? Yeah. (laughs) You may have also heard this, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Well, Paul spent time with people, ministered with people, served with people. And he didn't name all of them, but he named some of them, and we're going to learn about them tonight. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So the Apostle Paul did not minister alone. He didn't travel alone. He didn't plant churches alone. He enlisted a team of people to help him carry out his mission of preaching the gospel to the Gentile world. Some of these people we will never know. You remember when we talked about Hebrews 11 and how there's some famous faithful people, but then there are others that we don't even know their names. Their names are not even listed, and yet we know what they endured for the sake of the gospel. Well, there are many people that partner together for the sake of the kingdom, and we'll never know their name this side of heaven. But Paul takes time to name 10 of them. He identifies servants of the Savior, and in doing so, they're recognized for time and eternity. We'll talk about them 2,000 years after the fact. So let's let's look at this top 10 list. Now, since we are in Texas, not first century Turkey, I'm going to pronounce these names phonetically once we get to the outline, but I will give you the correct pronunciation as we read through the text the first time. Does that make sense? Okay, you're not going to write these names down and say, oh, I hope, my grand- I hope my daughter names my granddaughter this or my grandson this. It's not going to be that way, trust me. But he starts in verse 7, naming, first of all, Tukikos. That's the, per- that's the correct pronunciation. But we will call him Ty- Tychicus or um, whatever you want. <laughs> Tychicus. Tychicus, or Ty, is good. But Tukikos is the way his name is pronounced. He says, He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, and he will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, that's how you say that, but it's Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, 
is how you say that. Aristarchus is what we'll say here in Texas. My fellow prisoner greets you with Mark or Marcos, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, or Jesus, who is called Eustos, or Justice, they are my my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear witness, I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, or Demas, greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos, or Nymphos, and the church that is in his house. Now when, the, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Arch, Ar, Archippos, I can't roll my R's, I can't speak Spanish, but, or we'll just say Archippus or Archie, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. The first person that Paul names is Tychicus. And Tychicus is the faithful man. He's the faithful man. Uh, Paul mentions two things about Tychicus. And the first is his character. The second is his commission. He calls Tychicus a beloved brother. This is one of the most intimate descriptions used in the, in, in the Bible. Beloved brother. We meet Tychicus for the first time toward the end of the book of Acts. He's mentioned as one of Paul's traveling companions uh, on his third missionary journey. He was probably saved during Paul's lengthened stay in Ephesus, and then he went with Paul. Paul, by the way, was forced to leave Ephesus because of a riot that broke out. And so that was kind of a a fast way to forge a friendship right there. Uh, Tychicus was with him and accompanied him. They left Ephesus. They went through several Gentile churches that he had founded, then went on to Jerusalem. And I'm sure that Paul got to know Tychicus very well. When you travel with someone, you just get to know them a little bit better. I think you can testify to that. Uh, While Paul was there, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was then detained for a long time in Caesarea. Um, And then he was eventually imprisoned in Rome. We don't know how long Tychicus hung around. He may have been there the whole time and just journeyed with Paul Uh, Nevertheless, we do know that he was with him serving Paul for at least part of the time in Rome because he mentions him here. And he asks him to deliver this letter to the church at Colossae. And so he was there with him. So, you know, the saying, real friends walk in when all others walk out. Tychicus was one of those men. He was faithful. He had a great character. And then his commission was to gather information about the church while he was there. I give a report to Paul and then also give inspiration to the church. John Phillips, a commentator, says this about Tychicus and his commission. He said, how astonished Tychicus would have been that morning as he boarded the ship with Onesimus and put out to sea had he known that the piece of parchment in his bag would outlast the Roman Empire and that it would be translated into thousands of languages, and that it would be read and studied and proclaimed among men for some 2,000 years, and that millions of people would read about him. Isn't that awesome? He had no idea. 
the importance of his job. The second man that's named is Onesimus, or we'll, we'll just say Onesimus. And Onesimus was the fugitive man, the fugitive man. He's named in verse 9. He was a free man in Christ because he met Paul in Rome and was saved, but he was Philemon's runaway slave. You remember in the introduction we said that Philemon is kind of a book that goes right along with uh, Colossians because it was being delivered to a man in the church at Colossae. The man's name was Philemon. Paul wrote him a personal letter urging him to mend a broken relationship, and that broken relationship was with his former slave, Onesimus, who had run away from his house and went to Rome. And then he ran into Paul and God's sovereignty, and he got saved. And now Paul urged him, you need to return and make amends. You see, he was a Christian. He had been forgiven of his sin, but he still had to face the consequences of the wrong that he had done to his former employer, Philemon. Conversion does not cancel our moral, financial, and social debts. But I think it's awesome that he was willing to go back. Man, what a testimony to his changed life. What a testimony to the fact that God had transformed him from the inside out. He's carrying a letter to his former employer that pleads him to receive him now as a brother in Christ. And so he's a fugitive man. But Paul describes him as a faithful, beloved brother in verse 9. And he says this to the church at Colossae, who is one of you. Guess who's going to hear that when it's read aloud in the church? Philemon. He's going to be sitting there looking across the room at Onesimus, this man who had hurt him and run away from him, sinned against him, and he's going to hear the apostle Paul say, he's one of you. He's your brother now. Pretty awesome. So Onesimus was the fugitive man. And then the third man named is Aristarchus, and he is the fearless man. And the reason Aristarchus is labeled as fearless is because he was a, he was a faithful companion of Paul. He's from Thessalonica. He joined him on his third missionary journey. He traveled with him to Ephesus, and he was captured and almost killed by a mob. Um, there, was a, there was a mob A riot broke out that was instigated by Demetrius and other silversmiths. You can read about it in Acts 19, 29. Well, they got a hold of Aristarchus, and uh, they captured him. They almost killed him, and yet he continued with Paul. He left Ephesus. He traveled to Greece and Asia Minor. He eventually accompanied Paul to Rome, and they experienced a life-threatening shipwreck on the way. He was right there during the shipwreck, endangering his life. Um, And then while he was in Rome, he eventually became a prisoner. We're not quite sure why. Maybe it was just his association with Paul. Tradition has it that Aristarchus was eventually martyred by Nero. But he fearlessly faced every persecution and hardship that came his way to remain faithful to the Savior, Aristarchus. He was a fearless man, fearless man. Then we get to Mark. Mark is the forgiven man. The second part of uh, verse 10 there. And this is the same Mark. This is John Mark from the book of Acts. John Mark. A few years earlier, he had disappointed Paul so badly that Paul just could not stomach being around the guy. You see, it was Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark ministering together. John Mark started out strong and then could not last. He had to go home. Well, Paul had no patience for that. 
He had no patience for John Mark. He wimped out. I have no time for this wimp. I mean, think of all the things that Paul was enduring, and he had men like Aristarchus by his side, and here's John Mark. He's just flaking out on us, and so he just wrote him off. And Barnabas, who is an encourager, uh, pled with Paul, let's forgive him, let's give him another chance. Paul just would not have it. And Paul and Barnabas came head-to-head over John Mark. And it got so heated that they could not continue on together. Paul went his way, Barnabas and John Mark went their way. Well, John Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. He interviewed Peter, other disciples, uh, but he was used by God. This is undeniable. And I'm sure that through correspondence or whatever, Paul and, and Mark made amends, but the reputation of their conflict had probably spread through the, throughout the early church. So Paul feels the need to, to, to say a qualifier uh, when he talks about his name. And he, and he says, I, I, want you to, I want you to welcome him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Don't give Mark the cold shoulder because of what you've heard. Everything's okay now. We've come together. The relationship is healed. But Paul had since forgiven him, but he was, he was concerned that Mark's name be cleared. And as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit had already used Mark to pen the first gospel by that time. And he knew that the Colossian believers could benefit from his presence in the church. But he wanted to be sure that he wouldn't be received with a cold shoulder. Mark is the perfect picture of forgiveness. We still screw up after we trust Christ. Do you remember when we talked uh, last week, if a person's weird before Jesus, they're probably going to be weird after Jesus, right? We're all works in progress, and Mark had failed. Even after he followed Christ, he failed. And there's contention, and there's rebuke, and there's correction, but there's always grace, and there's always forgiveness and restoration. And so Mark is the perfect picture of a forgiven man here that is that is beneficial to Paul. In fact, Paul, in his second imprisonment, asked for Mark to come and minister to him because he's beneficial to me. So Mark is the forgiven man. Number five, in verse 11, he names Justice. His real name is Jesus, but he wants to go by Justice. The friendly man, the friendly man. You know, Jesus was a common name, and Jesus is actually just a transliteration of Joshua, And you can imagine that that was a very common name among the Jewish people. Joshua was a legend uh, in the Hebrew culture, took over after Moses, led them into the promised land. You can imagine how many people were named Joshua and Jesus that was translated uh, into that dialect. And so Jesus was a common name, and that reminds us that our Savior had a pretty common name, common everyday name. But that name was not particularly, holy, not particularly holy then, but after Jesus finished work on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, you can imagine that there was a holy connotation to the name Jesus from that moment on. And so I see uh, Justice, this Jewish man, saying, oh, no, 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 don't call me by the name of my Messiah. Just call me Justice. I'm going to go by the name of Justice because he revered the name of Jesus. But he was faithful And he was friendly. He was an encouragement to Paul. He was a helper to him. And uh, Mark and and Justice are the only Jews that helped care for Paul during his imprisonment. He, He points that out. But he brought comfort to Paul. He was a friendly man. 
verses 12 through 13, he mentions the pastor and the church planter of the church there in Colossae, Epaphras. And Epaphras was the fervent man. He talks about Epaphras' zeal and fervor for the people in the church at Colossae. He was so concerned about this corrupt teaching that was coming in, and he, and he had reached his, his leadership lid, if you will. He could do nothing else, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't know uh, who to turn to, and so he journeyed a thousand miles to Rome to meet with Paul, to share his concerns, to see if Paul had an answer for him so he could go back and help the church. A 2,000-mile round trip to visit him and bring instruction that would clear up the doctrinal delusion. And so he fought for the Colossian believers fervently. It says that he prayed for them fervently. Uh, This man loved that church. Epaphras was a fervent man. In verse 14, the first part there, we see Luke. Luke is the famous man. Compared to all of these other names, Luke is the one who has the fame, okay? Luke is a doctor, number one. He was a healer in his day. Uh, He was a helper. He stuck with Paul closer than anyone else. He was there when everybody else left, and he was also a great historian. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Uh, The book of Luke was written by who? Luke. You guys are so sharp. I was just checking to see if you're awake. But by this time in Paul's life, he required, he required um, medical attention. He was not a well man. He had been through so much. He had been beaten up. He had been whipped. He had suffered through shipwrecks, imprisonments. Um, he, all, he often refers to a physical ailment that he had. He called it his thorn in his flesh. We don't, we don't really know what that is. But by this time, he needed the care of a physician. And Luke was a physician. And he was also his close companion. So he served a very practical purpose by helping Paul physically. He had his personal doctor there. Uh, He was also a helper to Paul. I would imagine that Luke was was a great encouragement to Paul. At times, he was the only companion that Paul could count on. While writing to Timothy during his final imprisonment in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says this phrase, he said, only Luke is with me. He's the last one. It's just Luke. There's a movie coming out in March, Paul the Apostle, and it's from the viewpoint of Luke. Luke is with Paul. So it's Paul imprisoned, and Luke is there ministering to him and uh, serving him. So it's an interesting perspective, and it's based on that text right there, 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. So Luke was a helper. Luke was a healer. Luke is also a great historian. The Holy Spirit Use Luke's meticulous mind to chronicle the life and ministry of Jesus. If you want to know the complete picture of Christ on earth, read the Gospel of Luke. The other Gospels start in different places. Luke goes back like a great historian, interviews people, and fills in the gaps and begins with the announcement of Jesus' birth. And then covers his birth and his life's ministry and all of that stuff, his resurrection. Not only that, but he chronicles and details the expansion of the early church, the book of Acts, is Luke's great work. And he's traveling with Paul, documenting every city. He names names and places and all of that stuff. It's, it's amazing what Luke contributed to our knowledge of Jesus' work on earth. So Luke was the healer. He's the helper. He's the historian. He's a famous man, Luke. And then verse 14, the second part there, 
He names Demas or Demas. And Demas is the floundering man. He's the floundering man. Paul had something praiseworthy to say about all the people he mentions except Demas. He says a name, then he has a little accolade, except Demas. And a lot of theologians think that he contrasts Luke's name with Demas's name. He puts them right there together as a contrast of character. But in, in other letters, he, he refers to Demas, and he lists Demas with Mark and Aristarchus and Luke, and he calls them fellow laborers. But in this, in this letter, his name stands alone. There are no accolades. There are no words of praise. And it seems like Paul senses there's a flaw in Demas' commitment. And so he doesn't say anything. And a few years later, when he writes 2 Timothy and he's in his second Roman imprisonment, we, we see why. Because he includes one final comment about Demas, and it's pretty sad. 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. That's sad, isn't it? Demas has forsaken me. He left. He hadn't departed because he had denied Christ or abandoned the faith, but because the world had gotten the best of him. He just wasn't in it anymore. He just faded away. And he left Paul. Jesus uh, talks about two kinds of thorns that choke out our faith. In Matthew 13, verse 22, he says, There are two kinds of thorns that choke out the the, the faith, and that is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So worry and wealth. Those are two thorns that choke out our faith. Worry and wealth. Maybe it was worry for Demas. Maybe being there in Rome with him under the watchful eye of a Roman soldier all the time, his moves under suspicion, people listening into what he was saying, never knowing if he would be arrested next. Maybe he was just worried for his life, worried for his family, worried, and it got the best of him. And he said, I can't do this anymore, I'm out. And he left. That happens sometimes. Maybe it was wealth that did it. Maybe he was drawn away by the promise of some lucrative opportunity, and he said, I'm not going to suffer here anymore. I've got to go do something with my life. I've got to go make a living or something. Either way, we must always be weary weary of worry and wealth. They will always try to pull us away, and it happens quicker than you think. Things come up on your schedule. You just deem more important. Church becomes less central to your life, becomes a category, and before you know it, it's been four weeks, five weeks, six weeks since you've been, and then you have an opportunity to go, and something else comes up, and things just take the place of Christ in your life. You just fade away. We must be cautious. And then in verses 15 through 16, we read of Nymphus. He's the fruitful man, or Nymphos. He's the only believer in Laodicea, whose name we know, the church of Laodicea. That rings a bell because of Revelation 3, 14 through 15. Jesus talked about the church and its wealth and worldliness. Uh, well, Nymphus was there in the church at Laodicea. In fact, the church met in his house. He, he turned over his home for the work of Christ, and he surrendered his stuff so that the church could meet. He used his resources and allowed what he had to be used for the glory of God. He was fruitful. He's fruitful. The only thing we know about his house is that one time a church met there, right? 
It, it reminds us that really the only thing that is remembered and the only thing that lasts is what we do for Christ. That's the only thing that's eternal. We would know nothing about this man or his home 2,000 years after the fact were it not for the fact that he allowed the church to meet, his, to meet in his home, the church of Christ. And so therefore he's a fruitful man and we know his name. And so earthly things that are used for heavenly things become fruitful gains that last forever when we turn it over to God. And then finally, the last name that's mentioned here is Archippus. And he's the faltering man. Verse 17. Archippus, if you read through Philemon, he appears to be Philemon's son or part of Philemon's household. And Philemon was a man of means. He also appears to have had a calling on his life for ministry that he had been ignoring or neglecting because of what Paul says to him here. He, he says, just, just remind Aristarchus to take heed, or uh, I'm sorry, Archippus. He says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Because he wasn't fulfilling it. He wasn't minding the ministry. And so he encourages him and he encourages them to, to prod him along. And this is interesting because Archippus received a ministry from the Lord. And, and really any ministry that we have is received from the Lord. It's not a career. It's a calling. We do not get into the ministry because we go to Bible college and then go to seminary and graduate with a 4.0. And then some church calls us to manage their affairs. That's not how it works. It's not like a career path we choose. It's, it's God choosing us and calling us out uh, for Him. The Lord often bypasses, by the way, some systems that we set up in our minds for people in ministry. Uh, church history is full of such men. Let me just mention a few. Moses, he had to unlearn most of the things that he learned in Egypt before God would use him to lead the people out of Egypt. He went to seminary in the desert. Uh, there's David. He was a simple shepherd boy. There was Elisha. He, he had been, he just pushed a plow. Peter was a fisherman. I like to say this. God can use people you've never met from places you've never been to do things you've never seen. He doesn't need our systems. He doesn't need our, our small circles of influence or, or connection. He can always find a man uh, even outside of our circles. And by the way, when you, when you just use your circles, those circles get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and become shallow pools. But Archippus, he, he was neglecting a ministry that God had given him, and he said, you need to fulfill that. You'll never be happy until you fulfill that ministry. So do it. Step out in faith and do it. Well, there's one final name that's not in the top ten list, and it concludes the letter here, Paul, the Apostle Paul. In verse 18, he said, this salutation, by my own hand. And then he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And so Paul, as he takes the pen to sign the letter, there's an iron shackle rubbing his wrist. There's a heavy chain dragging the floor. And he says, remember my chains. This sound, clanging chains, was the background music of Paul's life in Rome. He heard it all the time. At the other end of that chain, there was a Roman soldier, always aware of his moves, always aware of his words, always watching what he did, always listening to what he said. It was the cost that he paid to honor Christ. And so he says in a subtle way, remember, I'm in chains for this.
I'm not teaching you or preaching down to you from a lofty ivory tower. I'm not telling you to contend for the faith and to stand up for just Jesus and salvation from a place of comfort and ease and prosperity. No, I'm in chains for this, but it's worth it. Be faithful. And when, when things get tough and when you challenge those false teachers and when you stand up for Jesus, remember my chains. Remember my chains. The truth that I preach was purchased at great cost. Now we're going we're gonna to close our time uh, together tonight a little bit differently. We're going to do worship at the end because next week uh, a bunch of pastors and missionaries from all over the nation will come to this place for the National Fellowship Meeting. It starts Monday. Some of them are well-known. Some of them you've never heard of before. Some pastor big churches in big cities. They have a lot of followers. Some you'll never even know. Small towns, obscure places, uh, small churches, smaller than this right here. Um, and, And some serve in dangerous places. But they're all coming here. And they all have the same challenges in ministry. They have physical challenges, emotional challenges, spiritual challenges. I'll never forget, during my ordination, during my ordination service in Jacksonville, Florida, Dan Pride, who was my pastor and my boss at that time, he preached my charge, and I was sitting right there. And uh, after I'd passed all the, gru- the grueling tests, you know, and defended the doctrinal statement, all this stuff, he preached my charge, and he said, Dave, today... Satan has put a bullseye on your chest. He's targeting you for destruction. You and your family. And it was sobering. It got my attention. And he was right. Satan wants to steal, to kill, and destroy. And all these pastors and missionaries are in spiritual warfare. Uh, They're struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually. And we want to be like an oasis to them for three days. Just come on in, lay your worries aside, see some familiar faces, meet some new people from different places that have the same challenges that you do. Let's be encouraged, hear some great preaching that you didn't have to study for. Get some great resources, hear some great music. Just fill up so that you can go back to the work that God's called you to do. We want people to be charged up the next couple days. And so we want you to have a part in that. You've you've heard us ask you about those cards and putting a $20 bill in a note card and filling it out and encourage them. Uh, And some of you have done that. Some of you have taken more than one card. We really appreciate that. But we we just want some more note cards. We're going to add to the rest and add money to the rest. And so we figured we have a pretty good crowd here tonight. We're going to pass some note cards out, and we want you to just write some encouraging notes to them. You don't know their names. Uh, You don't know where they're from. You don't know where they're serving. But just jot something down like, I'm praying that you will continue to be faithful. Thank you for preaching God's word. Thank you for serving the Lord. I'm praying that you're refreshed this week. I'm praying you're inspired this week. I pray that God meets your needs this week. I pray that you'll go back with with more energy and more fire than you've ever had. I pray that you'll have a new vision for your church. Uh, I pray that this is a refreshing time for you and your family. Just whatever comes to mind as we worship, as we sing, as we praise, just write it out. And you can sign your name. Names are important. Help you realize that. 
And God may use this note from you with your name to really change a person's perspective. They may come here thinking they're going to quit, and they read your note, and they say, you know what, I'm going I'm to keep going. I'm going to keep going. So I'm going to ask Ben to come, and if you would like a card uh, to fill out, we're going to pass them out. So just raise your hand if you're willing uh, to, to sign a card to somebody and just write an encouraging note. Yes. Yes, if you don't put money in it, don't seal it. If you want to throw a $20 bill in there, go ahead and seal it up so we know there's money in there. Okay, but if you're willing to write a note, even if you don't have any, have any money, you just want to write a note or five or whatever. We're going to sing, and as we sing, you're going to fill this out. And then when you're done, just join us uh, as we worship together.